Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And on the podcast today, we have Elizabeth Povinelli, Franz Boas Professor of Anthropology and Gender Studies at Columbia University and one of the founding members of the Caribbean Film Collective. Elizabeth is here to talk about her book, The Inheritance, which was published in 2021 by Duke University Press. The Inheritance is a graphic memoir following Elizabeth Povinelli's inheritance, which was passed down not through blood or soil, but through a framed map of Trentino, the region where her family's ancestral alpine village is found. Starting from this map, Povinelli explores the events, traumas, and powers that both define and divide the pasts and futures of individuals and collectives through associations to nationality, ethnicity, kinship, religion, and belonging. Taking the reader into the gulf between the facts of history and the stories we tell ourselves to survive and justify them, The Inheritance is a rare illustrated piece of scholarly work relevant for anyone interested in understanding intersections across biography, geography, kinship, and history. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Elizabeth, who I have the pleasure of joining us on the show today. So Elizabeth, or if I can call you Beth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Suvi. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. It's a pleasure for me too. I'd like to begin by asking you about what drove you to write a graphic memoir on the topic of inheritance. I've been toying around with the topic for many, many years, um, it, but it was probably in 2015 when I formally began work on it. Uh, it was at that time that I became bothered by a set of commercials that I was seeing with more frequency showing white Americans discovering their true origins via DNA testing. Um, And I kept wondering, what is that about, really? Um, It's in part about a company trying to make a profit, obviously. Uh, But I, I was thinking, what's the relationship between this white ethnic turn to origins and something that was going on around the same time in Italy and especially in Northern Italy and other areas in Europe where I was hearing definitely on the right, political right, but also in some parts of the progressive left, a rhetoric that was returning to images of autochthony, of indigeneity, And especially up north and where my family is uh, from, parties like the Lega North or the Northern League were using images of Native Americans to argue that their indigenous lands were being invaded by immigrants from Northern Africa and elsewhere. And so I was thinking, what is going on here um, around this time 
in this strange, you, you know, American ethnic, white ethnic, and European discourse about origins. And for me, both intentionally and, and unintentionally, um, I thought, in, in, for some very intentionally, we're trying to erase or blur out the history of the present and in particular, the history whereby white ethnic Americans, but also Europe as such, had accumulated wealth and social value, um, no matter that at some point in the past, they may have had a set of cultures and traditions and social imaginaries that were describable, I suppose, as indigenous. So that's when I really started working quite explicitly on pulling this graphic memoir out. Right. And and your book is graphic um, and it includes multiple images and multiple visual forms. There's a lot of layers and a lot of kind of depth through the illustrations that you provide. For example, the maps in the book each convey a different meaning according to its, to its illustrative style. Some of them are your own sketches. Some of them are based on population census and data and others are maps with infrastructural and geographical data. Um, I wanted to ask you, what do the images signify for you? And perhaps more generally, what were you conveying through the visual elements of your book? You know, when I first read this question, um, and uh, as you just said, your book is graphic. And I thought, oh, my, it's not that graphic. (laughs) I.e., you're blind. You're graphic. And... And it's relevant because there is a way of telling the story that's very graphic in the sense of very violent. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that. The, the I originally imagined the book as almost entirely visual. That is, with, with the exception of maybe, let's say, three paragraphs of text that readers would just be flipping through images. And the idea behind doing it that way was that I, I wanted to get readers or lookers to experience the experience of the protagonist, the young Elizabeth, who tried to make sense of an image before meaning, before linguistic meaning, and even before the image had any semiotic sense. That is, how to convey or prompt the affects of the hold of a image um, before a linguistic or discursive frame has was what's added onto it. Um, so I, I tried that and then I tested it out on some friends of mine and, you know, surprising they could follow a lot of the story, but there was a lot they couldn't follow. Um, and so I decided, okay, we have to, Beth, we have to add more text. Uh, and then the 
po the poetic relationship between um, the story, and it's really a story. It really doesn't get meta, really meta until the third act. But then the poetics of the story and the poetics of the image became even more interesting to me. That is, I didn't want it to be like a comic book in which you just have like pictures and then text bubbles. I wanted the images and the text to have a relation of non-relation. So more of a, um, a, a suggestion between what you're reading and, and what you're seeing so that what you're seeing is the affective register of little Elizabeth and what you're reading is a story about her. And that story about her is indeed at times graphic, at times <laughs> violent. And then the question became how much of the violence do we want to register either in text or in image when and in, in, in what rhythm in order to both pull readers into the, you know, the, the, the pathos of the story in order to swap them into another story about inheritance, which we'll talk about a little more later. Yeah, I think especially the way you drew the eyes of, of both yourself as a child and, and the other characters, they, they keep changing in each of the um, kind of the stories that you're focusing on. There was something, when you talk about affect just now, there's something through that visual element of the eyes that really does come through um, in the book. Yeah, thank you. The eyes and also, you know, the the the, the way in which drawing is great because you can or or uh, comics or we, we love cartoons. You can you can use the stretching of the body to convey like if an arm stretches out or hands become distorted, too large, too small heads, then you can convey certain kinds of, I think, registers of affect through these bodily distortions. Absolutely. Um, and on that topic, I hope you don't mind if I ask you a follow-up question about um, about creating work that is visual in comparison to textual. Um, has this has this memoir changed your association to writing, writing scholarly work in particular? Yeah, you know, I've drawn, painted, sculpted these strange wooden board things. I don't, you know. I don't really know there. I guess they're kind of sculptures and with text on them and stuff uh, my entire life. And I come from one of those families that in which everybody painted, composed songs, conducted science experiments, wrote short stories, wrote grand scientific theses on things that no one really knew what they were talking about. And, um, and so it was a, this, and it was, it was a large family. If you look at, if you read the, the inheritance, you know, I, you'll know I have, uh, five other siblings, uh, you know, the, the cousins are very large, but in, in my little natal family, there were, uh, six kids and obviously, well, not obviously <laughs> two parents. Um, and we grew up in a world in which we just assumed everyone was always creating sounds too, I don't know, precious, but was always making stuff, you know, making, making, 
and do, make and do. And for me, the visual um, production is is much easier, to be honest. Um, it, it's in it's in creating visual pieces that I can lose time. I don't lose time writing. <laughs> Some people do. I've heard people, but you know my my literary uh, uh, novelist friends and, you know, and academics who say, oh, and then I lose time as I'm writing. And I think, oh, I wish. Uh, I don't. I can lose time editing, cottabing films. I can lose time painting. I can lose time drawing, but not writing. It's a little bit, but not really. So I guess it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer for me because because it it hasn't changed i think what's happened is that i'm the the separations between these forms of making are more visible or the the non-separation between these forms of making are are more visible uh in anthropology in the university i've been you know i've been part of a film collective for i think been going for over a decade now. Um, so our work's been moving around and it's, we've been really lucky to be shown in a bunch of places. Um, and the book covers of a lot of my academic books are, or at least some of the covers are from my work, my drawing or painting work. So, yeah, so I don't know quite how to answer this. <laughs> I think, I think my writing is still like. Can I say something else? I think my my the the uh, my most dense, I suppose, um, uh, pieces of academic writing. I see them as a drama. I I, I get people might say, <laughs> what? But for me, they have a a rhetoric and a drama of unfolding. Um, and I, what, what's hard for me in writing, to be very specific about it, what's hard for me in writing is that you have to unfurl the argument in, in a syntax. So, you know, the, you know, the sign chain. And we all know this as a sign chain unfurls forward, it changes the meaning backwards. And we also know that each word or lexical item we use has around it these virtual words and items and we also know that in any sentence you're not really authoring it yourself you're quoting intentionally or unintentionally a whole history of people that are now inhabiting you um but it's that it's that chain that uh, that line that really gets me i I don't know it's very hard for me to to unfurl a thought in a line. It's much easier for me to put it in a three-dimensional object. Three-dimensional, yes, or or image, I suppose. That I think that's a fantastic um, answer to the question. Um, let's move closer to, let's dive into the contents of your book. So um, in act one, you you start to weave together the stories of your family. So in each, um, and you have three acts in the book and each 
Um, and each act, you provide a bit of a narrative following the stories of your grandparents' flight from the village and from their village in the early 20th century to the fortunes of their knife-grinding business in Buffalo, New York, and your own Catholic childhood in the shrinking Louisiana woodlands of the 1960s and 1970s. And through these stories, you describe the serial patterns of violence, brutality, dislocation, racism, and structural inequality that have shaped not only your own life, but the American story. So you start the story telling the reader that your book is not a strict history, but a memoir, and you return to this idea of history and facts throughout. Um, and a lot of this memoir revolves around, or it starts with the map of your inheritance, which is framed and hung um, in your childhood living room wall. And according to your father, this frame was supposed to, supposed to tell you who you are, whilst at the same time to remind you to never forget who you are. But as you described, the framed map had a counter effect. And rather than reminding you who you are, you write, quote, I would never forget not knowing what he was talking about. Whilst it was supposed to be an image of bringing the family together, this map, you describe how it shattered it instead. Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit more about the relevance of this map. And what is it, uh, what is it about it that you did not understand as a child? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, the very first page of the book situates this, and I still don't know what to call it, an image, a picture, um, a map. I suppose it's a map, technically. It's uh, So the, at the very beginning of the book, I situate this map as in the far background, just in, almost in the wall. So you don't even see it that when you're, when I was just really, really little and it slowly emerged as different from other visual elements in the Southern world in which I was being raised. Um, so I talk about how, you know, where I grew up in the South folks had Elvis and Confederate flags um, or Jesus hanging on their wall. Um, but it wasn't just the content of this map that was framed and hung in this pride of place and the images that other folks framed and hung in their houses that was different. It was that it wasn't, didn't seem to me as a, you know, as just a little kid, that it was a picture of anything, right? That it, it wasn't a picture of in any way I understood the phrase a picture of. It, it didn't seem to picture of a dog or a house or a village, you know, in which you'd have little houses or something like that. Or it wasn't the pic a picture of a country in which, you know, you would see a border and the U.S. in here, and then across that line, you'd have Canada over there or something like that. Um, so it was, it was, it was like, what, literally, what is this? And because what you saw when it finally kind of emerged from the wall were a set of like wiggly lines and green and brown and greener 
And now I would just say, look, it was a color topological map. That's what it was. And it was a, it was a topological map in color um, of the Alps that was cut to the section of the Alps and a square was cut out and put behind glass in a frame. Um, so it was like, what is, you know, literally what, first, what is it? Why are we staring at this, these squiggly lines? Then the question of where is it? And then the question of why is it, right? All these questions start tumbling out of an original, this isn't even a picture of anything. This, I don't, I fundamentally don't understand what's in my visual field. And that's why the whole book was going to start with nothing but images so that folks could get a sense of this visual dislocation that became kind of part of a psychological problem that, you know, I joyfully still have. Um, so, so that's really what you're, you're seeing, I suppose. And that's why it becomes both an original kind of a subjective problem, but then it emerges as a deeply historical and political and social problem because by the time one can understand, ah, this is a topological map of somewhere. So where, because it shows, you know, borders, it doesn't say here's Switzerland, here's Italy, here's France. It has nothing of that. It's just squiggly lines. And, and thus it acts as a kind of mirror for where people situate themselves in a history of frontier violence and dispossession. Um, so my, for my, my grandfather, my father's father, it, it signaled one thing. Um, and for my father's mother, it signaled another thing. And for my father, it, sig- it signaled another history. Um, so that the, 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 literally the frame, we like to think, well, a frame brackets and creates meaning. And instead it, 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 it set the occasion for, um, these enormous arguments and fights and affects. Yeah, and this idea of signaling meaning really comes through um, in Act Two, which we title Papa. So it's about your grandfather. And here you um, kind of narrate the stories that your Papa has told you about his upbringing and the dislocation and dispossession from the communal inheritance that he faced. Can you tell us a bit about some of these stories and, and what they meant to you? Yeah, you know, Freud says we don't get the super ego from our parents. We get it, we get it from our grandparents. And if you think like that, then our grandparents are getting it from their grandparents. So this is stretching way back, and I think that's super important because the stories he told were, you know, they were more or less maybe true, but they're also the stories that he's telling of how he absorbed his grandparents' understanding of place and belonging and location and dislocation. So so part of um, both the book, um, but also this bigger, this other project I'm trying to work on, is trying to think about these, the affects, the angers, the expectations, the resentments, um, the prides that circulate within 
say Papa's stories, but also shape and narrate his stories um, that stretch back in time, um, not merely to his childhood, but to what he thought his childhood should have been. So, so, you know, I tell some, I tell some classic Papa stories. And in one, I tell a story about uh, a story he told us about his eyeball um, because he had two eyes. Well, he had two eyes. <laughs> um, yes, he had two, two eyes. <laughs> His eyes had two colors. Um, one was blue and kind of steel blue, like I guess like mine. Um, and the other one was a, a cloudy mustard color um, uh, with what looked like a scar on it. And, you know, he would... We should I tell you the story? Yes, of course. <laughs> so he would he grew up. Um, we, this was just one classic Papa story. He we he would you know we'd go visit it, him and he'd say hey, Elizabeth and he'd grab you and he says, "Look in my eye. You want to know how your Papa got this eye?" And he would he would really he would get us right up to his little mustard eye, and and the mess of it. And he and I would you know I would I, I say in the book I would say, no, I don't want to know. But honestly, I don't remember. Right. Um, a lot of this is, it's not a history, it's a memoir. So I, in the book, I say, no, I don't want to know. And, and he, of course, he would tell you anyways, because y- y- what you wanted, your affects could not penetrate this, this dense wall of affective history. And that's part of what's at stake here. Um, and then he'd tell a story about how he was, you know, he, it was a knife grinder. So we, uh, Povinelli's, like many um, families in the this area of the Alps, uh, uh, were knife grinders. And they, when they immigrated, they brought their trade with them. And so he said he was like grinding knives and the chip flew out and ping, it went right into your papa's eye, he says. And so I grabbed my any rag sitting there and I ran up to tell your grandmother, take me to the doctor. And, and then your grandmother, she says, ah, Angelo, you never taught me, let me learn how to drive. And so I drove while she told me which way to turn and then got to the doctor and the doctor says, Angelo, I have to take out your eye because I don't know what's in there. You could get infected and you could, you know, you could die. And my grandfather would say to us, you know, these Protestants, they spit on us. They think we're dirty immigrants. Our hands are because of their, you know, working hands and they have oily residue everywhere. They spit on us, blah, blah. So I told him, you take out my eye. <laughs> I'll kill you. I'll kill your family. <laughs> and Dr. Angelo, um, uh, he said, and, and uh, Papa said, just sew it up. And it, and the doctor says, I can't give you any numbing for your eye. I'll have to sew it up without any numbing. And Papa says, ah, I'm from the Alps. I'm tough. I'm not like you. So the guy sews up the eye and Papa comes back. Um, and he says, see, what do you know? Uh, look at my eye. It's fine. Didn't get infected. I didn't get a, you know, my brain didn't rot. And the doctor says, oh, well, that's good, Angelo. But I'm going to have to take out these stitches and there's going to be no numbing. And Angelo, ah, I'm from the Alps. I don't care. And 
the doctor takes out the stitches and Angelo is like, see, I didn't even flinch. And then the doctor says, well, that's really right. But Angelo, you see the scar in your eye? I'm going to have to sandpaper it down. Oh, God. Yeah. And so we would always mm. just sit there and just, you, you know, these, these stories, you can imagine. You're just a little kid. <laughs> this is what I have to do to survive? What is this? <laughs> and it really wasn't until I was probably in my 20s that I thought, I don't even know if this is true. But all of his stories were like that. They they were these tales about the kind of brute, stubborn, pain-absorbing bodies necessary to survive what was always coming your way. And this is because in, in his understanding, Corzolo, which is our village, uh, the village of Povinelli's was, has always been the, a, a violent frontier in which his families and the other original families from this village are being dispossessed of their rights. And there's a history behind it, that's for sure. So from the 11th century to the 18th century, um, up in that area of the Alps, uh, little villages were given the right to determine local laws about the use of commons, both pastures for the cattle and forests for, you know, collecting stuff and who could, who had the right to live in the village, to, to own houses in the village. And these rights were passed down through families. And in my case, in the Povinelli case, through clans, because (laughs) I guess we were big breeders. So Povinelli's got so big that we had to have clans and I'm a Simonot's Povinelli. And so, so these were very important and guarded rights that the Vicino, Vicino, the families had to be self-regulating, to to determine how they belong to each other and to their lands in this sub-national, sub there weren't really nations, sub-empire, sub-kingdom form. And... And this only changed when Napoleon started rampaging through Europe um, to, you know, grant liberation and modernization to to Europeans. And, you know, in, in my family, that liberation into, uh, you know, universal mutual recognition and, and property modernization was actually a form of dispossession, um, but a form of dispossession that was quite different from the form of dispossession and um, and enslavement that Napoleon was protecting in, say, Haiti. So you have Napoleon dispossessing my village of its customary rights and all that at the same time that N- Napoleon is actively and viciously suppressing the the Haitian revolution. Um, and at the same time that Hegel is off in Jena, you know, writing the phenomenology of guys. So it's this really interesting, horrible period of time that my family has a very particular relation to. Yeah. So it only really makes sense through, through your family's own history and these relations that your papa stories were really 
that which were gifted to him from the previous generation he was trying to gift on to, to you and your siblings well kind of trying to gift on but not really so part of what you know part of what well what i say in the book as i transition from papa's story to the vorberger story to grandma's story is that for papa it was all personal he didn't actually seem to care about these broader historical issues that his story was part of a more global history the stories he told us were about the slights that happened to him <laughs> you know insults that those kids in that school that he stuck the pen in the little kid's forehead um, were about him, right? So it's a very personal story and nobody else mattered. And I think that's important to say that that a lot of these histories um, that people hold just become very, mm, how do you say, imploded, right? And, and thus the, the resentments, that's what we're supposed to hang on to, the resentments that happened to us versus thinking about these broader histories that were happening to a lot of people and, and in, in multiple ways. Right, exactly. And, and then in the, the following um, chapter, so the second part of Act 2, um, if I if I understood correctly, you do broaden the narrative. So you look at the movement of European populations at the turn of the 20th century um, in efforts to escape the continental wars and the realignment of empires, nations and nations through your mother's side of the family, the Vorbergers. Um, and you interlace these stories with your mother's father's story that had also, as you write, um, quote, become an, an, an ancestral landscape that no longer made any sense. Um, but this landscape was not hung on the wall. Um, can you tell our listeners a bit more about these stories and how you interpreted them as a child? Why did they not make sense to you? Uh, the, you're exactly right. The Vorberger section, which if you just like look at the number of pages, is quite, it's the shortest, shortest one. And, and there's a reason for that. The Vorberger story tries to put the drama this personal drama of my papa, my my paternal grandfather, into a larger context of Europe. That is the this moment in which we're seeing a huge shift um, and transformation between nation and empire. So the the post first world one that the real turbulence that's happening in Europe and the subsequent kind of mirroring xenophobia and nativist reaction that's happening in the U S so you have, you after the first world war, you have the, these transfers of, of, um, of place between nations and empires and then you have the great exodus out of europe heading many places in one place into the u.s you have the u.s in the 1910s through the 20s when we have this formal immigration law having a nativist freak out as it always seems to um and in this case against southern europeans jews anarchists you know the all these words um so it's the Vorbergers 
and especially my mother's father um, story allows me to put Papa's story in this bigger context um, because uh, my mother's dad, Charles Vorberger, came from Alsace-Lorraine, which shifted from being a German area to being a French area after the First World War. And and again, so the story goes, um, my maternal grandfather's parents gave him like, I always say five bucks, but it would have been five francs, I suppose. Um and, you know, gave him five francs or 10 francs, whatever it was, and said, there's the boat, here's the ticket, have a good life. And poof, he went. I, he might have been, got to have been at least maybe 15 to 18, but he was a really young guy from what I know. Yeah, from what I know. And this was, very, it's very typical. It's still very typical. This is what families are doing. I mean, they're, the kids have to head off on these these horrific um treks in order to try and find safety. So what's happening now, you know, is happening then. It's, an, it's a different configuration, but very similar. And, and what I want to do, though, is not only put Papa's story in this broader context, and hopefully people can hear the resonances to the present, but also the way different families and different individuals um, uh, do or don't fetishize their origins. Right. So, so, so Grandpa Vorbiger, he didn't hang a picture of all saints Lorraine, you know, on his wall. I never saw that in their houses. Um, you could have, and in the book, I actually have a little, you know, drawn image of it that you could have framed. Um, for him, it was like good riddance, you know, I don't want, I don't want that history. Right. That history did no good for me. I'm gone. Um, but there's another reason, again, that I, the Vorbiger story is so important, even though it's so short. Uh, and that's because in these movements, these, these huge movements, and again, like now, some people simply disappear as other people's dramas take over, right? So, so the question is whose dramas become the drama? And who's kind of just sink in. And Papa's drama was so overwhelming, it took over our family. And honestly, I don't know a lot about the Vorbergers. They were just, they, 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 they basically didn't matter. They didn't have a village or, or they weren't from our village. So who cared, right? And that's part of what I'm trying to show or, you know, get that, affects of reading this is like you know what about everybody else papa what about your wife and you turn to to his wife so your grandma in the third part of act two Mm. um so through her stories you continue along the theme of looking to the past to find truth but you also go beyond that to consider broader national histories as you did in the former chapter two um, but through your grandma or la nonna, you, you're able to add a different perspective to, to your more dominating, the more dominating brutal stories of, of Papa. 
And um, in this chapter, you write, quote, as mother held her hand to my face and we looked into the mirror, I wondered who I was becoming in the unbridgeable rift between Carisolo and Carisol. I should have been thinking about what was happening to me as this fault line opened up in America. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about what these fault lines convey. Yeah, uh, you know, the uh, maybe I should just quickly also say the difference between Corzolo and Corzol. Um, so Corzolo with a C and Corzol with a K um, marked the difference between our village's place within Bavarian and um, Austro-Hungarian empires and its place in an Italian imaginary. So, so, so the, so the village itself in, in my grandparents' generation had two names, Corzolo, Corzol. And in the village, there were different mm, alliances or different desires to be a part of Italy or to be a part of the Austrian-Hungarian empire. And my papa you know, from everything I can remember, um, he, you know, he, he wanted to be part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. He, you know, we had, we were, we, we had a, we had a, you know, Joseph was our king and that was very important. And, and for him, the Austrian-Hungarians at least allowed for this multi-ethnic form of governance. And, but my grandmother's side, the Ambrosies, they lean more toward the Italian um, desire to uh, re, quote, reclaim Italian land. So, so that fault line is a fault line within my family, within the village, within history, and et cetera. Um, but my grandma is, for me, at least the real tragedy in, in the story. And in, in some ways, it's she she begins and she ends this book, even though she's only, you know, she's part two of part two. She's the core. She, she literally lies for me in the center and structurally she is in the center of the book. Um, and she personally, and as a kind of example, kind of case study, um, is a, is a case study in the way in which dispossession um, is really about dislocation uh, in myriad forms. So it's not merely about how people become dislocated from their lands. So, you know, grandma was brought over by Papa in, you know, the turn of the century, um, but how they become dislocated from themselves Um the way in which dislocation can cleave or rip subjectivity, right? Uh, so that you can't find yourself where you are and no one can find you. Like you're a ghost and you're talking and no one can quite understand what you're saying. So in the, there's a set of stories I tell in the book um, uh, that try and get at this. Uh, and one, one I don't tell uh, is about grandma's uh, understanding of how you cure like warts, like, you know, warts. and she, 
would tell us to put chicken fat on them. And then my father would tell us to put chicken fat on them. And so we'd walk around with chicken fat like, <laughs> to our legs. And can you imagine in the 70s <laughs> South, you have chicken fat like taped to your leg? I mean, if you got a war. I mean, it just was like, oh, my God. It, like, it, let me say, you can get into the coolest circles. So, <laughs> you know, that was a funny one in which at least my father supported it in this way. And maybe it had some sense. Maybe there are a lot of antibiotics in chicken fat. Um, but some of them were not so supported and weren't kind of funny and and became child abuse very quickly in the U.S., like, you know. Like if you're sick, you should get up and you should work. You got to sweat it out. And whereas, no, you're supposed to like treat children as fragile. And it was like for my grandmother, you could not do that. You would die. So there was, there was and and child mortality was huge in the Alps. The Alps are, were not for her the Alps of today, which are you know they're very wealthy. They're ski resorts. They're they're beautiful bike trails and hiking. I mean, they're very wealthy, but they were like Southern Italy, extraordinarily poor. Um, and so for my grandmother, if you, like my grandfather, if you didn't develop a certain kind of like seriousness and toughness, then you wouldn't survive out of childhood. And so, so these you you're in a place in which people your 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 practices of love and care were characterized as practices of abuse and ignorance and that's what dislocation and dispossession is and um let alone she spoke a language uh, you know it, we were called it dialect uh, technically i think linguistically it's ladin it was one of these little alpine languages um it wasn't Italy, Italian, it wasn't German. So it also had this very thick locality to it. And, and slowly the, the, not the loss of the loss of place, the loss of this really deep history that you could only have if you were in Corzolo, you could only speak the language if you were in Corzolo, um, slowly dislocated her mind. And the book kind of tells us what happened with that, which is really horrifying. Um, so, so her dislocation of self, I say we need to, we sh I should have been mapping on what was happening to me as this dislocation in her created a dislocation between me and her, between this understanding of heritage as from the past and me living in the present in Shreveport, Louisiana in the 19, late 19, mid 1960s through, you know, the seventies. Yeah. And also what I really, um, I mean, the, the chapter is very moving as, as you described just now through the, through the few examples, but also the book just so, so the listeners know the, go, the book does go into more examples of, of this dislocation. Um, but it's really, I think, a really moving way of, of kind of drawing in on that point of the top, topology of an inheritance. And also, um, I can't remember if it's in the book or in the video. So for listeners, um, Beth has also made a video of, of the book itself. So, um, But here you go to, dis you, you've, you look at this topology of inheritance and the behavior 
of your grandma um, who, who was dislocated and kind of holding on to what you describe as this kind of old, old world or old Europe. And your mother who carried a fear or seeing, seeing your mother carrying a fear of who your father was becoming um, as reflecting of him becoming um, his father and, and watching how he treated your grandma. So this kind of constant interaction across the, the, top, the topologies of inter- inheritance through these relations and, and actual like in-depth fears that we carry. Yeah, like the... As I say, when you when you you know you you ask you, you noted that the book is graphic, and I immediately thought, oh, how graphic it could have been. Um, you know, the, the the it was violent up in the, it was a very violent scene up in the Alps. Um, poverty. Uh, it was a the, it was a slaughterhouse in World War One. It was, you know, it was, it was tough. And, and the, the, my grandfather in particular thought the way you raised kids was to make them these hard, stubborn, unbudging things um, that no one could run over. No one could dominate. No one could unbalance. I mean, there's a there's a apocryphal saying you always had, or I remember him having, which was, you know, you can kill me, but I'm not going anywhere. And it was that kind of really stubborn refusalness that he thought he had to make in us, and and you know, and he thought he had to make in his kids, and then his kids, well, at least my father thought he had made in us. So there was a lot of, you know, people would say there was a lot of violence in my family. Um, and and wives were treated differently than sisters and daughters. And, and, you know, there was the paternal law in which wives must obey the the husband, but you could love your sisters and your daughter. So it was very gendered. And the book delves into that. Um without trying to, you know, become just some kind of weird graphic, like, oh, like going into details. There's enough, I think, you get a suggestion of what's going on. Um, and, you know, and, and as this wears down on my grandmother, so between the severe dislocation and then the dominance of, you know, the, yeah, you, I don't know, the sadism is wrong, like, like, Grandpa did think this is what you had to be like to survive, and I can understand why. Um, but my, you know, we watched this decomposition of my, you know, literally mental, physical decomposition of my grandmother, who was this amazing, strong, funny, willful person. And my mother and everybody said I had her eyes and that's what you're quoting. So my mother would take my face and put her hand over the lower part and kind of on the forehead and say, see, you have your grandmother's eyes. And for me, that meant I was going to become grandma with all the ramifications of it. 
And of course, we all wondered if my mother was going to become grandmother. What was done to my grandmother was, as she got depressed, they, you know, they use electric shock therapy and these early antidepressants and stuff. It's just, it was horrible. But, you know, we were like, how's this going to pass down? Right. Um, and so it was a very scary set of intersubjective relations. And the third part, the, the first two parts try and set up the readers to really experience the, the intersubjective horror of the history that's coming down from the Alps into the U.S. and then down into Louisiana. So that, honestly, I can shift the narrative and say, okay, that's sad. And it is. It's all sad. But let's put this in the context of not an inheritance that's being passed down from the 11th century in my family, but rather in the infrastructures of inheritance that we start entering when we get to America. Yeah, so let's delve into the final act of the visual memoir, um, where you described, as, as you just told our listeners, there's, with the images, again, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm referring more to the quotes in your book, but especially in Act 3, you really begin to see how layered um, the visual the visuals of the book are. You know, you have these um, contemporary photos in, in the forefront of, of many other layers behind it, maps, sketches, um, and, and you know, these kind of cartoon figures of yourself um, and notes. So it's re- it's a very layered visual format. And it's also um, not, a, not, it's not, there are moments in which it's representational, but like when we're talking, when I'm talking about my grandfather's eyeball, you know, I have, I have a caliber in which there's an eyeball being squished and, you know, and there are other things like that in which it's like, there's a rhyming relation to it. And I know we're, we're talking, we're producing texts. I'm watching this, this podcast capture all our words, <laughs> but, the, yeah, but the, 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 the book is really mainly visual. You're right. Yeah. And the, and the final image in your, and the final vi- uh, visual image in your book is, is of you um, holding up a ladder Sorry, the, the child version of you holding up a ladder along a window. Well, there's a window at the top of the ladder, and um, and a knife kind of thrust into the the ground, and and um, and then beside that is a, is another image, but one of you holding the ladder, the hand, and then the foot kind of stepping onto the ladder, and you have the this image. These two images are paired with the following text. Um, quotes, inheritance doesn't come from the past. Inheritance is the place we are given in the present in a world structure to care for the existence of some and not for others. And I think this is just such a fantastic um, kind of conclusion or final page in, in this in this rich memoir, um, kind of drawing into the present moment of the racial and settler history of America um, and the present day society obviously not just limited to America, but, but you draw into this kind of Louisiana home um, where, where the world cares for some and undermines others. Um, but perhaps you could tell us what, what this passage and, and, and the final act resonate, uh, resembled for you. Um, what, does it, what does it carry and, and how, and also kind of how can we alter these infrastructures of in, inheritance? 
Right, 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 right. Right. You know, as I mentioned in the very beginning of our uh, talk today, I'd been toying around with pulling out whatever this was going to be um, in, you know, the mid 2000s um, when, you know, when I was really noticing all those DNA commercials, you can find out I thought I was X and then I took my DNA and now I'm Y and they swap clothing. Right. Um, and when I started seeing what the, sorry, that's my dog. Oh, wow. <laughs> She wants to take her out for a walk. So she's doing the squeaky toy. Um, so, so, and when I started seeing what the uh, the Northern League was doing with these images of Native Americans and saying, you know, we're the indigenous people of the North being swamped by immigrants. Um, so that that really that pushed me to say, wait, I need to I need to intervene in this and. So the third part, it says, let's, you know, Chekhov says if there's a gun on the mantle in the first act, it has to go off in the second. And there's me and a gun and, or little me and a gun. And, um, and what it means is that the book begins with, you know, the, this image hanging over my, in, on a wall in my Shreveport, Louisiana house. And we moved to Shreveport in 1964. Well, 1964 and 1965 are when the voting rights and civil rights acts are passed in the U.S. and when intense desegregation and anti-desegregation um, struggles break out, you know, yet again in the U.S. and George Wallace wins like five states in 1968. And he's the guy who says, you know, de- uh, sorry, segregation then, segregation now, segregation forever. And so it was really intense, right? Um, and as I'm writing it, of course, we're seeing the, another resurgence of anti-racist, anti-white supremacist decolonization struggles and movements occurring, especially you know by the time it's coming out, uh, with the whole Trump um, thing, uh, and this, and again in Europe, there are two different stories. One you can tell from a European, one from the U.S. Right, in which Europe is also in, involved in this new kind of, especially on the right, nationalism. I mean, some would say fascism. I wouldn't say it's like it's this new configuration of like we're also autochthonous or something that is influenced by the very critique of of uh, colonization and racism, right? This retreat into a certain kind of European or white indigeneity, um, right? So, yeah, so, so, and it works out in different ways if you're standing in the US or you're standing in Europe. And so this, the, 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 the graphic memoir and this, the film, and then this other project I'm working on now tries to address the two legacies of this, one in the US and one in Europe. Um, and so I was just thinking, it, you know, if anyone can claim to be like indigenous, European indigenous, hello, my family has a place that we can stretch back to the 11th century. We, you know, we have, we're a clan for God's sakes. We're subnational, blah, 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 blah. And yet 
And yet, that for me, the point is that you, this, 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 this history is also, or at this point in the present, a history of differential accumulation by dispossession, right? So my family, Pavanelli family, may have been dispossessed and dislocated, and it was from Napoleon to the First World War, but their lives, and thus mine, were, were I don't know, invigorated, like enhanced, blah, blah, because they were able to, whether they intentionally wanted to or not, whether I intentionally want to or not, they, they, what they inherited was a infrastructure of white supremacy and colonization when they entered the U.S. That's what we inherited. We inherited that history. And, and that history is a history of infrastructure. Part, one of the things the part three talks about is, um, or, you know, shows, draws with more fun stories is my father's, you know, he, he didn't like the South. He, and he wanted us to see the America was bigger than the South. And we'd go on these long road trips in the, you know, the 60s and 70s um, on these brand new highways. This, the interstate system, the U.S. was really new. And, and we were seeing America, right, and how big it was and how amazing it was. But we weren't seeing America. We were seeing the America that, that white supremacy was building for itself. Right. And building by blasting through everybody else's land, by creating these interstate cities that that gutted black neighborhoods that blew up and dispossessed various First Nation and uh, Native American lands, which there are a lot of good history, academic histories about. So so that's what I mean when I say, you know, inheritance doesn't come from the past. It's a, it's it's the place we're given in the present. Um, it's the, the, the infrastructures of accumulation and dispossession that we are all in, although we're in them differentially. And I think part of what these DNA, you know, like, fine, like everybody go find your DNA, whatever, um, or these new discourses of European indigeneity, I think what they're doing is creating this false comparison. If you, if you roll back history, yeah, sure, whatever. But it's a way of of avoiding the present and what that history has wrought differentially to all of us. Um, and so, you know, how do you change it? Well, one way of changing it was would be to like remember someone like Edward Glissant, who starts Poetics of Relation on a slave boat in the Atlantic and the three abysses that open for those in the hull of the ship. And for for Glissant, this this gives him the image, the picture, right, of what he understands as relation. And that doesn't mean we should all our relation should be like either in the hull of the boat or empathetic to those in the hull of the boat, but rather to understand that that boat and the boats before it that created that colonized and dispossessed these lands like my, you know, my grandmother's just, I understand, but we are all differentially related to that boat, right? We're already in it, but differently. So, 
So those folks who are patrolling the decks of the ship are accumulating by dispossession, by enslaving. And my grandparents, who you can say, well, we had nothing to do with that. We came and, you know, we started doing our thing in 18, I think it's 1895 or something, 1885. But we're inheriting the infrastructures that were starting to be built then. So we're in relation to it. And and that's one of the ways we can start. So if we're going to really think about decolonizing and anti, I think, and anti-white supremacist movements, we've got to do more than feel guilty. We got to kind of start jamming it. And one of the things the book tries to do, whether it's effective or not, is to to try and jam a certain kind of narrative about inheritance. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I feel like this has been such a such a fantastic conversation, and and the book itself as well is just so thought provoking. Um, I feel like we could just keep going on and on. Um, as I was reading your book over the past week, I've also obviously been following um, the Israel Gaza conflict kind of yeah. um, open up, and it's just uh, yeah. Exactly. I was constantly kind of going, reading this very um, inter- the intricate stories that you provide and and reveal through the through the images, and then following the news and at the same time reflecting on my own inheritance and the inheritance that people tell through their stories around me. And it's just the again the number of layers that you provide is just so so thought provoking and deep and and very rare in 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 a lot of um, scholarly work, let alone any kind of, you know, piece of, of art or, or, or writing that, that, um, that we try to put forward. It's very powerful. Um, but for now, I wanted to super generous and, and, and you're in the book, you know, people say, what is it? Sometimes they ask me, what does it feel like to tell a personal story? And I think it's not personal, Mm -hmm. you know, it's exactly about what's happening now in Palestine. It's about what's happening, on um, you know in the Mediterranean, what's happening in Morocco? It's 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 my story, but it's it's a lot of people's story. Yeah, yeah, I think that definitely comes through, and it's something that is it's it's I, I kind of got the impression that's what you're trying to do through this theme of inheritance to to get everyone to get your readers and listeners in the show today to be more conscious of that. So. Before we conclude our conversation, I wanted to ask you about what you're working on and thinking about these days. What kind of current projects um, have you been doing since The Inheritance was published? (laughs) Um, I I laugh because (laughs) what what are you drowning under today? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, uh, listeners can also go to our Kadabing webpage, which is K-A-R-R-A-B-I-N-G dot info. Um, I'm, I'm a member of the Kadabing Film Collective, and we're finishing a zombie movie. So that's in the last throes. Um, and then there's a there's a a uh, exhibition in Madre Naples that will happen. <laughs> He's going to put off like everything um, in which we're trying to bring the, the, the Carbing uh, side and the Povinelli side together. Uh, it, it's a, it's a very simple story. It's like, 
again, like how do we think about inheritance? If we look at the consequences of colonialism and white supremacy from the perspective of my Povinelli clan and the clans that composed the Cotterbing, um, so the film will, the inheritance film will be in it. And then there's also this huge wall of that just kind of moves down through history, sort of like the symphony of late liberalism and just looks at the differential effects. Um, that I'm going to pull into, uh, I don't know if it's a scholarly book. I don't know what it is, but, but it might be multiple, but it will, it will kind of use this very simple structure to, to again, make the point. It will be more a history rather than a memoir um, and then there's, then there's like, there's just endless other little things. I, there, I think I finally figured out what Alice Henry, um, would answer to a question that she was asked many, many years ago. And don't ask me who Alice Henry is. <laughs> so lots, 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 endless, endless. But thank you so much. This has been really a great, yeah. great conversation. Thank you. Um, and and these projects that you're working on all sound so intriguing. And and I and imagine the listeners will look forward to um, watching your videos and hearing, um, if not going to the exhibition itself, and learning more about all these things you're putting forward as as they as they happen. Um, for now, I wanted to thank you, Beth. Thank you so much for, for talking to me today and putting your time aside. Thank you, Suvi. It's been a pleasure, truly. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>